Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing the story of Frederick Douglass, a bloke so thoroughly on the right side of history, you you actually just won't believe it. We talked about this bloke last week, the first uh, first stage of his life. He started out in life enslaved, but he ended up as one of the most respected and most well-known public figures in in the entire United States by the time of his death. He was an author, a speaker, a statesman. He was well known for his outspoken views on the abolition of slavery, on, on women's rights and suffragism. And, and, and more broadly, Douglas's story is as interesting as it is inspiring. This fella, he spent his entire life working to improve the lot of the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the marginalized, those who didn't have a voice of their own. Last week, we talked about his early life working as a slave in Maryland, uh, including in the city of Baltimore. Uh, but from a young age, uh, as we discussed, he harbored a burning desire for freedom and empowered himself by learning to read. He took every chance he could to escape his situation as a slave, and he managed to, too. You remember the full story from last week, unless you, you know, didn't listen to last week's episode. I advise you to. Not only a, a great story, but also will probably help you understand what's going on with this one. Anyway, yes, last week we talked about the lead up, uh, the lead up to and the execution of his successful escape from slavery, which sets the stage for what happened afterwards as he turned to a life of tireless and selfless political activism. Douglas travelled extensively, uh, shared his experiences of slavery in, in powerful and uncompromising speeches designed to convince people of the necessity of abolition. Uh, he also wrote several autobiographies to share his story with people, and you can go online and you can read all of them today for free. They are all out of copyright, have been for years, and you can you can access them all for free online. Um, and, and again, I'll be including several quotes and passages uh, passages from these books uh, that he wrote, so we can hear some of Douglas's perspectives in his own words. But I really do recommend his books. Uh, they are terrific to read. They are engrossing and horrifying and effortlessly interesting. Uh, they're written in that that classic 19th century style that's so expressive and engaging. So I really do recommend you get across them. But today we will be getting across this bloke's life as a writer and a lecturer and everything else. We'll talk about where he went, what he did, who he met, and how he helped to shape, really. I mean, this might sound like a bit of an overstatement, but I can tell you it's not how he helped to shape U.S. history. This bloke rubbed shoulders with several U.S. presidents. He was involved with Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War, uh, with Ulysses S. Grant during the Reconstruction Era. He was appointed as the first ever African-American U.S. Marshal by President Rutherford B. Hayes. And throughout his entire career, he furthered the cause of both abolition and women's uh, enfranchisement. He published newspapers that strongly advocated for his progressive views. Uh, views which, I will say again, plant him firmly on the right side of history. An absolutely remarkable man with a remarkable career. So let's get across it. Here we go with the story of Frederick Douglass as a free man. Let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back. Uh, to where we left Douglas last week, 1838. He has just finished his daring and, and dangerous and, thankfully, thoroughly uneventful escape uh, from Baltimore to Philadelphia before ending up ultimately in New York City. And, of course, while this was a vast improvement on his former situation, 
he was by no means completely safe and sound. We talked last week about slave catchers, about people who would track down slaves, who would run away to free states and attempt to bring them back to the slave states in the South. Douglas had to be very careful. Even after arriving in New York, he had to be very careful with the company he kept, the information that he gave out about himself as he settled into his new life up north. Uh, luckily, he found a group of people who aided escaped slaves. Uh, they gave him food and shelter, and they helped him contact Anna Murray, the woman who he, who had, he had fallen for back in Baltimore, the one who had helped him uh, procure the, uh, the, the, the sailor's outfit in addition to giving him money in order to finance his, his escape there. And before long, she, as a free woman, left Baltimore behind as well to go and join Douglas, and they were married within two weeks. They would go on to have five children together, although sadly only four of them survived to adulthood. Um, and around this time, Douglas, uh, he used this opportunity, this, this you know, complete change in his personal circumstances, used this as an opportunity to change his last name, and Anna joined him as well. They went by Johnson for a while, but then they settled on Douglas after a character in the Walter Scott poem, Lady of the Lake. Uh, Douglas, obviously, I should point out, wanted to change his last name to avoid detection uh, as an escaped slave. Up until this point, he'd been known as Frederick Bailey, but he left uh, he left the name Bailey behind and instead became Frederick, uh, Frederick Douglas. Anyway, Frederick and Anna, they moved uh, to Massachusetts and Douglas now directed his energy and efforts in a direction that... I mean, it's not going to surprise you at all. We've talked about it at length. Uh, he moved to Massachusetts because he knew there would be an abundance of work. He's trade as a caulker, you know, working uh, on the docks with ships. He knew that there would be plenty of work for someone uh, with his talents and experience. But that's not where his path took him. Because instead of working, uh, going back to work in the maritime trade, he instead became a vocal campaigner for abolitionism and civil rights causes. And when I say vocal, I mean it very literally. He began to make public speeches and gathered a fair bit of fame due to his skills as a speaker. After being invited to give a speech by the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who Douglas initially admired quite greatly, Douglas was advised by Garrison himself to look into becoming an anti-slavery lecturer, which he did. Initially, Douglas didn't love the idea. He didn't like the, he didn't like the thought of speaking in front of large crowds. But he soon discovered that he was actually just really, really good at it. And so enthusiastically got stuck in, overcame that, that seemingly primal fear that so many people have of public speaking and ended up taking his first steps down a path that would go on to define his career and his historical legacy. Throughout the early 1840s, Douglas travelled around the northeast and the midwest of the United States, giving abolitionist and anti-slavery speeches to increasingly large crowds the, the longer he went on. His speeches were, were particularly compelling to audiences because of his lived experience as a former slave, as someone who could speak to the vile horrors of slavery from a first-hand perspective, not something that was all too common. A lot of the, the prominent abolitionist speakers at this stage were white. They had never been enslaved. They didn't have that, as I say, first-hand experience that someone like Douglas did. So this bloke really was, uh, a, 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 he offered something entirely unseen, very new and unique in terms of uh, the anti-slavery campaigning there. But uh, it wasn't just against slavery that he was speaking. He also campaigned against segregation. He was thrown off trains for refusing to sit in the segregated carriages. 
and faced a fair bit of backlash for his views. Um, uh, those in favour of, of, of slavery, uh, these, these racists would often come to his events. They would accost him and harass him. Uh, at a speaking event in Indiana, he was chased and beaten by a group of pro-slavery thugs who actually broke his hand so badly it never properly healed. It plagued him for the rest of his life. But he wasn't to be put off was Douglas. Absolutely not. He was a tenacious young fella. And uh, despite the very real threats to his livelihood and his well-being, he continued on this speaking circuit while also writing the first of his three autobiographies. And one of the reasons, or really the reason, I should say, that we have such a detailed account of Douglas's life is because he wrote about his experiences while enslaved extensively uh, in later years. And his decision to publish his life story was a huge moment for him. Published in 1845, uh, his, uh, his autobiography entitled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, it is a first-hand account of all the things that we've spoken to, uh, spoken about up until Douglass's escape. And I really just, I cannot recommend it enough. You can read it for free in its entirety online. Uh, as I said, you can just download a copy and read it. Uh, and the same goes for his second and third autobiographies, uh, My Bondage and My Freedom. And then much later on, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, uh, the one that actually finally outlined uh, his escape. But when the first one, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, when that was printed, people were amazed. It was a gripping and uncompromising account of life as a slave in the US. It was extremely well written. And, and this fact actually made some people sceptical. Um, and this isn't a particularly nice thing to talk about, but this is the reality reality of the time. And certainly, I have, I absolutely am not condoning or defending the, the viewpoint that he, people held at this time. But this is the fact of the matter. This is what people responded to this autobiography with incredulity. The prevailing racist attitudes of the time held that African-Americans lacked the intellectual capacity of white people, that they were naturally inferior, and that this was a matter of science and biology. It wasn't a subjective opinion held by misguided racists. This was just how the world was. That's what people thought. And so as such, when Douglas emerged as a powerful speaker and as an eloquent writer with such a gift for language and, and words both spoken and written... This fatally challenged the racist view that non-white people were necessarily and naturally inferior. Add to that the fact that Douglas had been raised a slave, the lowest of the low, part of a group of people barely even considered people. There were those who refused to accept the idea that a black person and a former slave at that would be capable of creating such a well-written piece of literature. But... The proof was there before their very eyes. And it's not as if there was no evidence that Douglas had such a masterful command of the English language. You could attend his lectures yourself. You could see him deliver these articulate and impassioned speeches in support of his views just as he wrote them out in his literature. So more than a few people were won over by Douglas's gift for language as it served as indisputable proof that all the racist nonsense that they believed about whites being superior, I mean, all of that nonsense was just that. It was racist nonsense. And so people's minds began to change. And it wasn't just the way the book was perceived, of course. It was what was actually written in the book itself that had such a huge effect on the political climate of the time. 
This autobiography shed light on what it was like to be a slave, the horrific experiences and conditions that were part of the enslaved's daily life. Uh, and, and also, uh, Douglas used the book to correct some pretty widely held misconceptions that, that people who had never had anything to do with slavery, uh, misconceptions that these people had about slaves themselves. Uh, for instance, the idea that the reasons that slaves would sing as they worked out in the fields is because of how happy they were. As Douglas laid out in this book, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's what he wrote. I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart and he is relieved by them only as an aching heart is relieved by its tears. At least, such is my experience. I have often sung to drown my sorrow, but seldom to express my happiness. In any case, Douglas's autobiography was a huge success, a bestseller, and it gained him even more fame and notoriety and... Due to its success in English, it was duly translated for sale across Europe. And it wasn't just his book that went to Europe. Douglas himself went with it in 1845 in the wake of it being published, acting on the advice of his friends. People close to Douglas were worried that the old family might come after him and attempt to reclaim him as their slave now that he'd gained so much attention as a, as a, as a speaker and as an author and as a public figure. And so in August 1845, Douglas boarded a ship across the Atlantic and landed in Ireland. And after landing, he was astonished by how he was received there in Ireland, how he was treated by other people. Again, we can hear from Douglas himself. Here's what he wrote about uh, about landing over in Europe. Instead of the bright blue sky of America, I am covered with the soft grey fog of the Emerald Isle. I breathe and lo, the chattel becomes a man. I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity, claim me as his slave, or offer me an insult. I employ a cab. I am seated beside white people. I reach the hotel. I enter the same door. I am shown into the same parlour. I dine at the same table, and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. Douglas spent two years travelling around Great Britain and Ireland, meeting with abolitionists and speaking in packed lecture theatres to huge crowds. And his supporters in Britain raised money to officially and legally buy his freedom from the old, so he became a free man in the eyes of US law while over on this trip. He also met with Irish nationalists and aligned himself with their cause as he was struck with horror at the condition of the Irish and their treatment by the British, noting some of the parallels of cruel discrimination and mistreatment on both sides of the Atlantic. Many pressed him to remain in Britain rather than return to the US where he would forever be in danger from pro-slavery elements, free or no, but he refused. His work was not over in the United States and so he returned to the US in 1847, determined to continue to campaign on behalf of the millions that were still enslaved there. 
Douglas had raised a lot of money for the abolitionist cause while in Britain and Ireland, and he put the money to very good use after his return to the US. He established an abolitionist newspaper called the North Star, and he became involved in the Underground Railroad, a secretive network of people who aided escaping slaves on their journey to freedom. It's estimated that Douglas and his wife personally aided no fewer than 400 escaping slaves with food and shelter. But it wasn't just his abolitionism that uh, that occupied the headlines in the, in the North Star. He also took up the cause of women's suffrage. In 1848, he attended the Seneca Falls Convention, the first women's rights convention, and he was the only African-American there. He spoke in support of women's suffrage at the convention. Uh, he could relate to the position of women as he, a black man, was just as disenfranchised. His newspaper, as I say, adopted the cause of women's suffrage as well as abolitionism and encouraged interconnectedness between these two oppressed peoples. And also in 1848, uh, as it was the 10-year anniversary of his escape, Douglas wrote an open letter to Thomas Old, his former slaver. And like most of Douglas's writing, you can go online and you can read it. And let me tell you, Douglas was not pulling his punches with this letter. While he is polite and formal for much of the letter... Douglas absolutely tears into Ald for being a slaver and for the treatment he received at his hands and asked how he would feel if Douglas came and took his daughter away from him. He wrote, How, let me ask, would you look upon me, were I some dark night in company with a band of hardened villains, to enter the precincts of your elegant dwelling and seize the person of your own lovely daughter Amanda, and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth, make her my slave, compel her to work, and I take her wages, place her name on my ledger as property, disregard her personal rights, fetter the powers of her immortal soul by denying her the right and privilege of learning to read and write, feed her coarsely, clothe her scantily, and whip her on the naked back occasionally. More and still more horrible, leave her unprotected, a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul, rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate all in her person the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood? I ask, how would you regard me if such were my conduct? Oh, the vocabulary of the damned would not afford a word sufficiently infernal to express your idea of my God-provoking wickedness. Yet, sir, your treatment of my beloved sisters is, in all essential points, precisely like the case I have now supposed. Damning as would be such a deed on my part, it would be no more so than that which you have committed against me and my sisters. So as I say, Douglas was not pulling his punches. He was playing for keeps. And this open letter that was published for all to read told the world what he thought of Thomas Old and, more broadly, the institution of slavery. However, Douglas demonstrated his willingness to be the bigger person in how he ended the letter. Here's what he wrote. I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for comfort which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. 
As we move into the 1850s, uh, Douglas continued his campaigning for abolitionism, for equal suffrage, and notably improved education for African-Americans through the desegregation of schools. And he did all this campaigning through more public speeches. He really was an incredibly gifted orator. Uh, And in 1852, he gave what is perhaps his most famous speech, definitely one of the most famous abolitionist speeches in American history, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? And as with his other writings and speeches, this text is freely available online. You're getting sick of me saying that. And let me tell you, Douglas was not mucking about with this speech. In this speech, he eviscerates the hypocrisy of the supposed freedom and liberty celebrated by the United States, while slavery continued to be a foundational aspect of the nation's identity. Have a listen to this. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. You profess to believe that of one blood God made all nations of men to dwell on the face of all the earth and hath commanded all men everywhere to love one another. Yet you notoriously hate and glory in your hatred all men whose skins are not coloured like your own. You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that amongst these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, you hold securely in bondage a seventh part of the inhabitants of your country. This was incredibly powerful stuff, and there's plenty more of it in the full text of the speech as he talks about his experience as a slave, seeing slave ships and markets, seeing ownership of other humans determined by things like card games. Douglas was absolutely uncompromising in holding a mirror up to American society, tearing beloved foundational documents of the United States to pieces. And his 4th of July speech is perhaps the best example of his fiery anti-slavery rhetoric. In 1854, he considered a run for Congress, but ultimately decided against it. Tensions between the North and the South are only growing and growing as we head towards the American Civil War. And it was thought that if Douglas won a seat in Congress, it actually might be what finally prompted the South to split with the North. So unwilling would their representatives be to share Congress with an African-American. But all the same, by the time that the Civil War erupted, Douglas was one of, if not the most famous African-American in the United States, a powerful speaker, a talented writer, a celebrated author, and an impassioned campaigner. Huge crowds appeared wherever he spoke. His messages had an increasingly large audience throughout the country as it spiralled towards civil war. And when the war finally began in 1861, African-Americans weren't actually even allowed to sign up and fight for the Union cause. But this changed in 1863, in some way, thanks to Douglas. Then-President Abraham Lincoln opened recruitment to black soldiers, and Douglas enthusiastically encouraged African-Americans to sign up. His sons joined up and fought, and Douglas himself met with Lincoln to discuss African-American soldiers and, in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation, how to move former slaves out 
of Confederate-held territory to the relative safety of the Union. Douglas was pleased that Lincoln had taken up the anti-slavery cause and fought the Civil War because of it, but Lincoln still didn't have Douglas's full support politically. Lincoln didn't support black suffrage, for one, and after his assassination, Douglas noted that, personally speaking, Lincoln was just as prejudiced against African Americans as most other white people were, and that he was very late to the abolitionist cause, more or less weaponizing it as a tool to win the Civil War. And to be honest, these are fair criticisms. Lincoln was a great statesman, there's no denying that. He left behind an incredibly important legacy as the president who saved the Union. But he was hardly the faultless champion of oppressed African Americans that he's often portrayed as. Still, it is unfair to characterise Lincoln as anything other than anti-slavery. And even Douglas admitted that him dragging his feet on the issue may have been out of political necessity. Here, here is Let's just hear from Douglas himself. Here is how Douglas summed up the way that Lincoln fought the American Civil War. A very interesting perspective that I thought that, that I thought would be very well worth sharing here. <clears throat> his great mission was to accomplish two things. First, to save his country from dismemberment and ruin. And second, to free his country from the great crime of slavery. To do one or the other, or both, he must have the earnest sympathy and the powerful cooperation of his loyal fellow countrymen. Without this primary and essential condition to success, his efforts must have been vain and utterly fruitless. Had he put the abolition of slavery before the salvation of the Union, he would have inevitably driven from him a powerful class of the American people and rendered resistance to rebellion impossible. Viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. But measuring him by the sentiment of his country, a sentiment he was bound as a statesman to consult, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. Though Mr. Lincoln shared the prejudices of his white fellow countrymen against the Negro, it is hardly necessary to say that in his heart of hearts, he loathed and hated slavery. And ultimately, of course, due to Lincoln and the Civil War, the issue of slavery was finally settled with the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution passed after Lincoln's assassination, which outlawed slavery throughout the United States, including the defeated Southern states. Now, this didn't stop the ever-present threat of white supremacy. It's still around today. It hasn't gone anywhere. And so Douglas moved to start fighting white supremacists in the wake of the abolition of slavery tooth and nail. And as they took power in the southern states in the Reconstruction era, Douglas threw his weight behind Ulysses S. Grant, who was elected president in 1868. Grant and Douglas conferred extensively on race relations, civil rights, and other issues. And with Douglas's support, Grant went after racist and violent white supremacists throughout the South. Douglas praised Grant's efforts into the 1870s, particularly after the Civil Rights Act of 1871 and Grant's efforts to break up the Ku Klux Klan. Douglas, now in his 50s, he is still speaking extensively. He is still a leading proponent of the rights of African Americans and women, and he still had plenty of opponents to deal with. In 1872, his house was burnt down, probably by arsonists wishing him ill. 
Uh, He'd been living in Rochester in New York, but after this attack, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he remained for the rest of his life. And, I mean, as you can probably figure out by the fact that he was rubbing shoulders with people like Grant, people like, like Lincoln... This bloke was not about to fade away from public life and from a a very prominent role in the day-to-day affairs of American politics. He did become the first African-American ever to receive a nomination for the position of vice president, although the nomination was actually made without his knowledge or his permission, and so he didn't. He didn't end up going campaigning or anything. Instead, he focused on his writing, he focused on his lecturing, and restlessly campaigned for civil rights, as as he had done all his life. An economic crisis in 1874 cost Douglas much of his income, unfortunately, and it forced the closure of his newspaper. Although in 1877, he was appointed by then-President Rutherford B. Hayes as the U.S. Marshal for D.C., the first African-American to become a U.S. Marshal. And that same year, 1877, Douglas paid a visit to Thomas Auld, his former slaver who was on his deathbed. Auld's daughter, the one who had been mentioned in this open letter years ago, was quite a prominent supporter of Douglas's, interestingly, and she encouraged the two men to meet one final time. And they reconciled, and Douglas seemed to get a measure of closure from the meeting after all those years. And as we move into the 1880s, Douglas published his third autobiography, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglas, which he would revise and republish a decade later. And again, I very strongly recommend it to you. It is uncompromising, informative, and exceptionally well-written. It is well worth your time. It is free to read online. And if you don't go away from this episode reading any other document or any other piece of literature written by Frederick Douglass, get across the life and times of Frederick Douglass because it it will change your entire perception and understanding of the history of the United States. Sadly, In 1882, his wife Anna died. And I have to say here, um, for all of Douglas's virtues, he he had not been a particularly good husband to her. He was away all the time traveling to give speeches and lectures, which is understandable given the enormous importance of his work. But during these absences, he wasn't always particularly faithful to Anna. While she uncomplainingly supported everything he did throughout his life, raising their children and supplementing the household's income with work of her own, she is an unsung hero of Frederick Douglass's story. He didn't write about her all that much, but Anna Murray Douglas, I mean, she doesn't get anywhere near the attention or the approbation that she deserves. And at the hands of her husband, she she was not as well treated as a partner and, and as a spouse should be. Douglas remarried after her death as well in 1884. He married a white woman named Helen Pitts, who was two decades younger than him. And this, as you might imagine, caused a huge amount of contention, both publicly and within their respective families. Despite Helen coming from an abolitionist family, her family all stopped talking to her. So when they were made to put their money where their their mouth was, they fell well short of that hurdle. Um, and Douglas's children, the children that he'd had with Anna, they weren't big fans of their new stepmother either. They saw the marriage as an insult to their late mother. But all the same, the marriage lasted. Douglas and his new wife travelled extensively as Douglas continued to speak, uh, both around the US and even across the Atlantic in Europe once again. Uh, Douglas aided the Irish over in Ireland, putting his weight behind the struggle, the struggle for Irish home rule. He supported and endorsed notable Irish nationalists as they campaigned. And right through the 1890s, Douglas continued his his life's work of attempting to improve the lot of African Americans. In 1892, he oversaw the construction 
of affordable rental housing for African-Americans. It is still there today, Fells Point in Baltimore. But finally, in 1895, the life of Frederick Douglass came to an end. On the 20th of February, he suffered a heart attack and he died at the age of 77. His memorial service was vast, attended by thousands and thousands, and his coffin bearers were US Supreme Court justices and senators. His remains were taken to Rochester, New York, and buried next to Anna's, while flags flew throughout the city at half-mast. And so ends the story of Frederick Douglass, abolitionist, suffragist, author, speaker, and above all else, a tireless campaigner for justice. It is very, very rare to find someone who was in almost every aspect, on almost every issue, on the right side of history. But Douglas was one such individual, giving his entire life over to seeking the improvement of the lives of the oppressed and the downtrodden, seeking to aid those who began in life as unfortunate as he had been. To go from the piteous, wretched circumstances of the enslaved to being laid in state, carried in death by the highest lawmakers in the land, Douglas's life was a truly remarkable one, and one that left the world a much better place than he found it. His voice was one of the most prominent and important throughout a time where the United States very nearly tore itself in two over a fundamental issue, an issue that it has not, in my view, yet fully resolved. The idea that people are fundamentally all equal and should be treated as such. Douglas was unswerving in his devotion to this principle, and his lived experience allowed him to comment with incontestable certainty on the injustices suffered by the enslaved, the disenfranchised, by those without a voice for themselves. And Douglas's voice hasn't diminished over the years, and today, with social injustice and racial discrimination seeing an unfortunate rise in places like the United States, It's a voice that we should be listening to more than ever. So go online, go to Project Gutenberg and read the words of this man, a man who has, as I say, firmly entrenched himself and his memory on the right side of history. Frederick Douglass. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the story of Frederick Douglass. I do hope you enjoyed it, but I want to quickly move on to the housekeeping stuff because I know that there are some people who have been having issues accessing the show. Um, Firstly, I want to apologize for this. Uh, It is something that is largely out of my control. Uh, It's certainly my fault. Uh, I didn't really foresee the scaling issues I would have as this podcast picked up steam. Uh, and what I'm having to do now essentially is go back and undo a lot of the back-end setup work that I did years ago when this show was a bit smaller than it is now. Um, and hopefully, I'm hoping that I've been in touch with the hosting companies and other involved parties, that sort of stuff. Uh, the timeline they've given me is about two weeks for to have everything fixed. So if you are having access, uh, if, you're having, if you're having difficulty accessing the show, well, I mean, 
Obviously, they're not. Obviously, the difficulties aren't that fatal because you're listening to this right now. But uh, you know, I shouldn't make light of it. You probably had to jump through some hoops to be here. I do apologise for that. Um, if the podcast isn't working on your chosen platform within a couple of weeks, it should be. In the meantime, you can stick with whatever platform you're using right now. Or, of course, the show always available halfhourshistory.net. You can use that as a uh, as a way to find the show every week reliably. Don't worry about that. That's not going anywhere. Um, but uh, Spotify, iTunes, all working fine. It's anything that's powered by Google Podcasts at the moment. It uh, does seem to be broken. Again, I'm talking with Google to try to get that fixed. Um, again, the timeline they've given me is a fortnight. Hopefully, by then, it'll all be solved. Hopefully, before then, it'll be solved. But I do want to offer, once again, a, a very heartfelt apology. Uh, I know that podcasts uh, are often a very important part of people's weekly routines and rituals, and I know that a disruption to that is very frustrating. So I do apologize. I am sorry. Um, uh, I guess I didn't think I was going to have these problems where the podcast was too big for the back end that I set up for it when I first started it. Uh, in some ways, it's a good problem to have, but that doesn't excuse the fact that it is very frustrating for many listeners around the world. So I do want to make it. I want to make it very clear that I'm sorry for that and that I'm working very hard to try to to try to fix it up. So hopefully, all this will result in is in a couple of months and even years. Listeners going back and listening to the entire back catalogue and being very confused about what was going on in December 2022. Uh, but suffice to say, at the moment, I know it's not good enough. I'll get it fixed. I'll get it sorted. And again, hopefully this will just be a, a footnote, a, 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 a bad memory to uh, to those of you who have experienced the disruptions. Hopefully it'll all get sorted out sooner rather than later. Anyway, I'm sorry. So that is that. Boring housekeeping stuff. Halfhousehistory.net, not only the place you'll find all the odd episodes, but of course the best place to get in touch with me to let me know that the <laughs> that the podcast uh, provider that you're using is broken, as many of you did. Thank you so much to all the people who got in touch saying that. I don't know about these issues unless you uh, unless you tell me about them. So if, you, if you're ever having a problem accessing the show, let me know because I want to follow up on it. Um, and thank you to all the people who are still week in, week out, sending in suggestions, sending in topic ideas. I read every single one. I research and go through and have a look at every single suggestion that's sent to me. So thank you very much for that. Even if I don't reply to your email, know that it is, it is read and it is very much appreciated. So thank you to all the people who continue to get in touch. And thank you to especially to those who are going to patreon.com and signing up as exalted members of the Patreon community for Half Us History every week, gaining access to all sorts of stuff, show notes, behind the scenes, uh, uncut episodes, uh, early access to shows as well. Uh, if you want to get uh, get out ahead of the rest of the uh, the other fans who are listening, halfhousehistory.net slash Patreon. You can sign up for, uh, for for pretty cheap. I think the lowest tier is about two bucks a month. So you can get across there if you want. Uh, but for those of you who are listening for free every week, hey, still appreciate having you along. Thanks so much. Uh, the numbers, look, I'm not going to say we're not in rookie numbers territory, we're, but we are climbing through the, you know, we're climbing through the numbers a little bit. And so to everyone who has come along as relatively new listeners and you've stuck around, hey, Thanks very much for being here. I'm glad that you're uh, you're part of the community. I'm glad that you're listening to this dumb podcast week in, week out. It's great to have you. Anyway, that's enough of that. Going to close out the show. Is, oh, merch as well. You know there's a merch shop. You can go and buy stuff there if you want. You don't have to. It, it's it's an option. It's not it's not mandatory. It's not obligatory. That would be an interesting strategy, though. You're not allowed to listen to the 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 podcast unless you're wearing a half a history t-shirt. T-shirt. Hmm. Maybe I'll maybe I'll look into maybe I'll look into that. Maybe that's a, a bold new marketing vision for the new year. Anyway. Uh, until next week, leaving you with a, uh, a question posed on Reddit, of course. Uh, looking forward to your company uh, in a week's time for more half House history. Until then, leaving you this question posed on Reddit comes to us from Abu Ben Adhem. We talked about Abraham Lincoln briefly today, and uh, Abu Ben Adam has a question about Abraham Lincoln. Didn't putting Lincoln's face on the $5 bill give him an unfair advantage in elections? Uh, 